Hey everyone. If you're trying to decide who the most exciting children's poet is, today's book is Where the Sidewalk Ends by Shel Silverstein, who is apparently the Wilt Chamberlain of children's <laughs> authors. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and me and Shel Silverstein both dropped out of college. <laughs> I mean, his country asked him to fight in a war, but I started... <laughs> doing stand-up comedy so check out kellen's book where the learning ends (laughs) (laughs) and i'm david vance i think the biggest weakness of robert frost or sylvia plath is that they never wrote poems about captain hook picking his nose Where the Sidewalk Ends is a collection of funny, whimsical children's poems, which Silverstein had time to write because he abandoned his daughter. Not again! (laughs) And this is The Book Pile. We do keep picking these guys, though. (laughs) This podcast is teaching me that sometimes the secret to having a great career is being a terrible dad. (laughs) All right, listeners, your challenge this week is to leave us a review in the form of a Shel Silverstein poem. But don't be mean. <laughs> Greer said, or R. Greer, I had a long road trip and was burned out on my usual podcast, so I decided to try this one, and man, I'm glad I did. I listened to them nonstop, both there and back, and found my, is this Bilbo? <laughs> I guess he hasn't gone there again. And found myself giggling and snorting the whole time. Highly recommend. We've gotten this comment before, people listening to us on road trips, so the way gas prices are makes us the most expensive podcast to listen to. (laughs) We're premium, (laughs) but our podcast is leaded. (laughs) Do not listen to it around kids. (laughs) My wife just bought a, a pot and pan set, and on the label it says, free of PFDs, something else, and the last one was lead. And it's like, oh, okay, good. I'm glad these pots aren't from 1943. (laughs) If I ran Kellogg, I would have cornflakes and then a box right next to it called arsenic-free (laughs) cornflakes. Finally, our next two books are Doing Good Better and The Alchemist. All right, and without further ado, here are four lessons that we took from Where the Sidewalk Ends. Lesson one, learn the rules to break them or make new ones. Don't tell my kids that. So Silverstein (laughs) says he didn't really study poets, but I think I would also say that after writing a hit book. (laughs) I think it's funny The authors and creators in general Do not take advantage Of lying in these situations (laughs) J.K. Rowling says that she was inspired By writing on a train past a castle And thinking, oh, what if you took a train And learned magic at that castle Mary Shelley dreamt of The Frankenstein concept But if I wrote Frankenstein And someone asked me How I came up with it I'd just be like I'm smart. I don't know. I just sat and wrote it. What You can't do that? Do you think maybe this is why God isn't giving you your Frankenstein? (laughs) 
So something I love about Silverstein's poems is that they look casual and fun, but they do follow very strict poetic rules. And I'm no English major because I dropped out of being an English major, but there are a couple <laughs> things that I took from poetry classes, and I'm sure you can find way deeper analysis of these poems uh, online, but I guarantee you it's not going to be as funny as the next couple minutes. So just <laughs> as, as an example, he follows pretty strictly either iambic or trochaic uh, meters. Iambic is stress on every second syllable. That's every Shakespeare sonnet. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? What's funny about that, too, is that when you Google that sonnet, uh, a lot of people qualify it as the most famous sonnet. And it's like, yeah, it's the <laughs> only famous sonnet. And for everyone yelling at me right now, the, the way I know a second sonnet, that's just because you've read some Shakespeare. And most people haven't. So <laughs> the thing I've been thinking about with Shakespeare lately is that if his play is named after a phrase, you know, people are going to have a good time. Like Much Ado About Nothing, A Midsummer Night's Dream. If his play is named after a person, you know that person's about to get wrecked. <laughs> it should be called, like, Hamlet has a very bad day. <laughs> Julius Caesar gets surprised. <laughs> so then the trochaic meter is just the opposite of iambic. Stress on every other syllable starting on the first. So one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. Even the name of this book, Where the Sidewalk Ends. Mm. Um, so when a poem doesn't follow the rules, it's intentional. And mostly to emphasize a punchline. I love how he, he'll break out of format and throw the rhythm off. And it's usually at the very end, again, where a punchline should be. It's almost like the words are breaking free. And here's my favorite example of this. And I'm going to read it with an exaggerated meter, so it'll be more obvious where it strays from the TikTok rhythm. He writes, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my toys to break so none of the other kids can use them. Amen. <laughs> my favorite version of him breaking those meter rules is... And here we see old Mr. Moody wearing such a gloomy frown, but turn him upside down and see, and then you turn it upside down and he still looks weird. Mr. Moody upside down, what did you expect? <laughs> <laughs> and for me, where, where Silverstein has added to the rules um, are the poems where the illustration is essential to grasp the full meaning of a poem, mm -hmm. which uh, I haven't seen, you know, in, in traditional poetry before, uh, <laughs> other than the occasional doodle from uh, Chaucer. <laughs> And it's interesting to read uh, his books with that filter of like, if I had never seen this drawing, would this poem make sense? And often the punchline is missing. Like in this one, <laughs> I'll read the beginning and the end. Open your mouth and close your eyes and you might get a big surprise. It might be a cake made with sugar and spice. And so he goes through all these nice things. And at the end it says, but wouldn't it be a bit more wise to close your mouth and open your eyes? And in the picture, uh, there's uh, a little boy eyes closed, mouth open, and I guess his sister is standing in front of him. She's holding a giant bucket behind her back that's labeled gunk. <laughs> and so that's fun. Like, But without the picture, a child would read this and go, oh, yes, that's good wisdom. You should keep your eyes open. <laughs> it's like how The Raven is a comedy. If only you could see Edgar Allan's funny bird drawings. <laughs> 
All right, lesson two. There's no one path. I'm going to start with a poem from the book. Oh, if you're a bird, be an early bird and catch the worm for your breakfast plate. If you're a bird, be an early bird. But if you're a worm, sleep late. (laughs) I love that poem because you ever read a self-help book that says, there is one way to succeed and only I know it. (laughs) (laughs) Like every weight loss book acts like every other weight loss book will turn you into a sumo wrestler. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're sometimes too confident about the formula for success. Because look at Shel Silverstein. If you were telling someone how to succeed, would you ever say, okay, get drafted to Korea so you can write cartoons for a military newspaper? That's the pipeline. (laughs) Then write for Playboy before you pivot hard into children's literature. That's how you succeed. (laughs) There's a quote by Ben Horowitz about these kinds of nonfiction books. The problem with these books is that they attempt to provide a recipe for challenges that have no recipes. There's no recipe for really complicated dynamic situations, for building a high-tech company, for making a series of hit songs, for playing NFL quarterback. That's the hard thing about hard things. There is no formula for dealing with them. Mm -hmm. I love self-help books, but I think sometimes they can be like rom-coms where the main thing they give you is wish fulfillment. (laughs) Because when I read a good self-help book, I realize that actually my life can be perfect. (laughs) Just walking by the self-improvement section of Barnes & Noble, it seems like all you have to do to succeed in life is to think rich and wash your face. (laughs) All right. Lesson three. Just make stuff up. This is also my advice to every client when I moonlight as a public defender. So, (laughs) Dave, you know that I feel strongly about this idea when it comes to creating and art in general, that there's a line between inspiration and copying other people. And Mm -hmm. I never like the excuse that people have of, well, you have to start somewhere, because to me, a blank canvas is a somewhere. I just think that what many people rationalize as inspiration is just a shortcut to get an idea because coming up with new ideas is hard. Hmm. At the end of another one of Silverstein's collections, A Light in the Attic, he includes this acknowledgement. Ladies First is based on a story of mine with the same title. Sour Face Anne was taken from an old Russian folktale, the me who with an exactly what was inspired by Abbott and Costello. The rest, I just made up. (laughs) And uh, I love this. From what I feel like I've observed in the industries that I've worked in, writing, comedy, and some filmmaking, to me there seems to be a three-tiered system to achieve maximum originality, if that's your goal. The first is mimicry. The second is finding inspiration and things. And the third is graduating to your, your own personal style. There is a secret fourth tier, but you have to pay a fee and join my cult. (laughs) Go to (laughs) kellenerskin.com. Slash blood ritual. (laughs) You know what I think is really fun? Mm. When you're donating blood, as soon as they start drawing, is you start chanting. (laughs) (laughs) So I've just seen this over and over where like most artists start out by copying or emulating, right? Because you don't know anything when you start. People who draw often start by tracing things as a child. When I started stand-up, I sounded way too much like Stephen Wright because I just trusted him as a comic and I didn't know how to talk like myself on stage. Like how I've quoted you, Dave, quoting Gary Goldman, who quoted the movie The Color of Money, about how the goal (laughs) is to be yourself but on purpose. 
You can tell that's going to be a real accurate quote. (laughs) (laughs) So after copying, then to me, the next tier is finding inspiration in things, which always seems a little sticky to me. Like, I hate the quote, great artists steal, which has very ironically been attributed to several different people. (laughs) Because there's a huge difference between being influenced by Picasso, like just basically doing your version of him, And then what Picasso was influenced by, right? Like some of his most famous works were inspired by the idea of the fourth dimension, right? Not another artist, Mm. just the seed of an idea. Uh, And to me, that's how you make your way to the third tier. It's the the closest you can get to pure originality when you've developed a skill set that enables you to express who you are through whatever you've mastered, be it a paintbrush, an instrument, a typewriter. And I don't mean writing. I mean like sculpting a typewriter by hitting it with a hammer. (laughs) isn't that how they make them (laughs) (laughs) so to me i i I see this with artists like radiohead who experiment with sounds uh or van gogh who experimented with colors with first with colors and then lack of colors then then eventually the wrong colors on purpose there's no black in his starry night Mm. i just think that ultimately Uh, If you can get to this place, style is what makes an artist stand out. And it's Silverstein's original style that enabled him to create and sell the only thick books of poetry that children will sit down and read. Name me one other poet. I know that some people are yelling Dr. Seuss at their phones right now, but I said thick books. (laughs) I mean, Horton had curves. He had some joke in his trunk. (laughs) Silverstein says of his childhood, When I started to write and draw, I was lucky that I didn't have anybody to copy or be impressed by. I had developed my own style. I was creating before I knew that there was a Thurber, a Benchley, a Price, and a Steinberg. And uh, I guess I'm lucky too, because I still haven't heard of most of those. (laughs) I was going to say, I also am writing before I know about those four. (laughs) Steinberg, he may be referring to David Steinberg, who wrote the American Pie movies. Um, (laughs) I think he's referring to the piano. (laughs) (laughs) What if in this podcast, we never said a brand name correctly? (laughs) Oh, yeah, I just bought some (laughs) cornflakes. I'm really hungry. I'm going to go grab a big mic at McDonald's. (laughs) The last two lines of one of his poems from Where the Sidewalk Ends, he says, put something silly in the world that ain't been there before. Hmm. So my takeaway is, just remember, in the movie Inception, Cobb pleaded with Ariadne to not copy ideas when she was designing mazes, and she didn't believe him. And Cobb's ghost ex-wife appeared in his subconscious and stabbed her with a giant shard of glass. All right, lesson four. Disorder is more likely than order. I'm going to read another poem, and for context, the illustration has a stack of pancakes as tall as a person. Who wants a pancake, sweet and piping hot? Good little Grace looks up and says, I'll take the one on top. Who else wants a pancake, fresh off the griddle? Terrible Teresa smiles and says, I'll take the one in the middle. (laughs) I read that poem, one, because it's funny, but two, because I think we would treat life and society as more precious if we realized how much more likely chaos is. Imagine you randomly distribute pancakes. 
there's so many more ways for them to be a mess than for them to be a neat stack. And I think we got to protect the neat stacks in our lives. Like, I think most of us don't realize destruction is much easier than creation. Like, New York City's been created over 400 years, but you could blow it up in a second. (laughs) A human adult takes 18 years, but they can die like that. It's partly because if you randomly arrange the molecules in your body, there are so many more ways for you to be dead than for you to be alive. (laughs) (laughs) So this is your Uncle Dave saying, protect your stack of pancakes. (laughs) All right, random facts. I looked up the mother of Shel Silverstein's daughter on a biography website, and tell me this isn't our society. Susan Taylor Hastings, bio, age, nationality, body measurement, career. (laughs) Oh, my word. It says, there is no verified information regarding Susan Taylor Hastings' body measurements, like her weight, chest, waist, hip measures. (laughs) This is her biography. (laughs) Wow. I kid you not, her career section is six paragraphs long, but it's all just about Shel Silverstein's career. (laughs) Oh. As a children's author, some of her partner's most acclaimed works are The Giving Tree. This is under her career section. (laughs) Where the Sidewalk Ends and A Light in the Attic. Also, her partner's works have been translated into more than 47 languages and have sold more than 20 million copies. It's six paragraphs of that. I don't know if if she wrote this or someone else did, but if she did, that would be like if my biography was like Kellen Erskine. Kellen's doctor graduated from Harvard University. (laughs) I love this quote from Silverstein. He says, I think if you're a creative person, you should just go about your business, do your work and not care about how it's received. I never read reviews because if you believe the good ones, you have to believe the bad ones too. And I was like, wait, what? I have to believe the bad ones? (laughs) This has already been a struggle for me. And my only comfort has been all of the bad ones are wrong. (laughs) that's tough because first you also turn a lot of the good ones into bad ones (laughs) (laughs) i'm i'm a tortured man i do like (laughs) the end of this quote he says not that i don't care about success i do but only because it lets me do what i want Hmm. like yeah like having fatherless children i can do whatever (laughs) i want If I write poems about garbage. (laughs) On the whole, he has probably brought more net happiness to children than sadness. (laughs) So he's probably still in the black. (laughs) Here's my favorite poem from the book. From out of the cold Caribbean into the desert Libyan, there crawled a strange amphibian, and we shall call him Fred. You say let's call him Ted, or maybe Lou or Jed, but I want to call him Fred. You like Maurice instead, or Barnaby, or Red, or Lucifer, or Ned? Well, anyway, he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) He has this story called The Little Blue Engine, and it ends like this. With a squeak and a creak and a toot and a sigh, with an extra hope and an extra try, he would not stop. Now he neared the top, and strong and proud, he cried out loud, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. He was almost there when crash, smash, bash, he slid down and mashed into engine hash on the rocks below, which goes to show, if the track is tough and the hill is rough, thinking you can just ain't enough. I just love that other children's authors have morals like, be true to your heart, and Shell's moral is, 
don't kid yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I'm writing on a children's cartoon right now. And at one point, one of the grandkid characters says to the grandma, but you told us that nothing was impossible. And the grandma says, I never said that. Lots of things are impossible. What are you talking about? (laughs) So this is a children's book, but imagine reading your four-year-old this poem. It ends this way. Under the bed crawled Mr. McGilly. Harry heard a chomp. Harry's the kid on the bed. He heard a slurp. He heard a gulp. He heard a burp. And now little Harry sleeps down in his bed because there are no monsters, as father said, parentheses. And if there are, well, they've been well fed. (laughs) Do your kids believe in monsters, Kellen? I think every kid does. I mean, Why don't we make a bed that goes all the way to the floor? (laughs) It's funny you say that because my kids' beds and my bed, like, I don't have any bed frames. I've never understood the purpose of them other than to be decorative or to shove stuff underneath. It's because rolling off the bed needs higher stakes. <laughs> well, and that's for my kids. Why make a kid climb? And uh, why buy an extra piece of furniture that serves zero purpose? Yeah. So my bed has feet. I'm not a king. <laughs> One time when one of my boys was sick, I found a YouTube video where someone read this whole book and I started it (laughs) and this woman couldn't sound more bored. And now (laughs) it's like a joke between me and my five and 10 year olds, where if they want to read the book, they'll say, hey, dad, could we read where the sidewalk ends? (laughs) I was amazed to learn that Shel Silverstein wrote the Johnny Cash song, A Boy Named Sue. What? And Yes. Whoa. It's about an absent father whose kid hates him, so I thought maybe he wrote it in regret because oh. he wasn't there for his daughter, and then mm-hmm. she died at 11. Oh my but no, word. he wrote it right before she was born. <laughs> <laughs> All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from Where the Sidewalk Ends. One, learn the rules to break them or make new ones. Two, there's no one path. Three, just make stuff up. Four, disorder is more likely than order. And five, name a book after something that you would just bring up in a city council meeting. Where the sidewalk ends.